0: If you've been listening to the podcast for a while, you'll have heard us talk a lot about the climate crisis, from funding a Green New Deal to the future of the climate movement. With the COP26 Global Climate Conference coming up later this year, we're spending five episodes this series looking at pressing climate issues. In this episode, we're talking about taking the fossil fuel industry to court. is your government minded to approve the development of a new oil field west of Shetland well i i i can't comment on, on that we want to move away from uh, i'm not aware of that particular decision i should say well, but we, we should we been in the in the press that
1: you are minded to support it
0: last week a government spokesperson said that we should freeze leftover bread and stop rinsing dishes before we put them in the dishwasher to tackle okay. the climate crisis meanwhile the government has approved a new oil field in the North Sea that we'd need to reforest the whole of England in order to offset. According to various estimates, this would be the equivalent, 600 million barrels of oil out there, by the way,
1: and gas, the equivalent of, by some estimates, increasing Scotland's carbon footprint tenfold. Or if you want it another way, opening up 16 coal-fired power stations in Scotland and running them for a
0: year. We do not need any more explore discover new oil reserves. The ones we have already today are more than enough to meet the demand. And will the government think again about approving this new oil project when it's meant to be showing global leadership ahead of COP26? Or, as with the Cumbria coal mine, is it waiting for the US climate envoy to intervene instead? So. Greenpeace has threatened the government with legal action over the new oil field, and they're not the only ones trying to fight the climate crisis in the courts. But what legal challenges should we be paying attention to? How do they work? And what do they have to do with the climate movement at large? In a landmark ruling, a Dutch court Wednesday ordered Royal Dutch Shell to reduce carbon emissions by 45% by the year 2030 a ruling hailed by plaintiffs as a huge win in the fight against climate change. I'm hoping to get a statement out of court that says, in instances like that, where a multitude of, of emitters actually cause a problem, each of them will be responsible for its share.
1: This climate cases, these litigation cases, they can provide a foundation for our work as activists to then come back to that and actually demand our rights to be turned into politics.
0: Welcome to the weekly economics podcast. In this episode, we're asking, can we fight the climate crisis in the courts? I'm Aisha Thomas-Smith, recording this podcast from my house. Stay with us. So this week, I'm really pleased to be joined down the line by Tessa Kahn, International Climate Change and Human Rights Lawyer and Founder and Director of Uplift. Hi, Tessa. Hi, Aisha. Thanks so much for being with us. I'm really excited to jump into this juicy chat.
1: Yeah, it's brilliant to be here. Thanks so much.
0: So, Tessa, you're a lawyer who uses law and the courts to stop the climate crisis let's look at a few legal challenges in turn, just to kick us off. So you've been campaigning against the licensing of something called the Cambo oil field. So what is that? And why is it important?
1: Great question. So the Cambo oil field is a proposed new oil field development in the UK's continental shelf. So it's an area that's west of Shetland, and it would be a massive new field if approved, it would be in the top five oil fields in terms of its size off the UK's coastline and the emissions impact of Cambo would be massive. It would be in the first phase of production alone, the emissions that would be created by the oil and gas that's extracted would be the equivalent to 18 coal-fired power plants running for a year. And I think there are some serious questions to be asked about the prudence of approving a field like Cambo, not only because we've already got enough fossil fuel supply, as in we've already got enough oil, gas and coal to take us beyond safe climate limits if we burn all of it globally, but the UK is also of course hosting the UN climate talks later this year and it sends a pretty questionable signal if it's trying to corral other countries into doing the right thing on climate at the same time as it's approving a massive new fossil fuel project in its own backyard.
0: Absolutely. I mean, there's definitely quite a few red flags to uh, to jump into here. So just a few clarifying questions. So I know the government's developed something called the North Sea Transition Deal, and then they also promised that all new oil licences would be climate compatible. So how has the Cambo oil field slipped through and, and how does it interact with this transition deal? Just to give me a clearer sense of what's going on.
1: Yeah, so you're right. So basically, the UK government has started to recognise that it has to address the huge inconsistency between its purported climate leadership and commitment to reducing emissions in line with you know, its international climate commitments and its net zero targets, with the fact that the UK is the second largest oil and gas producer in Europe, currently provides massive subsidies to the oil and gas sector and has a policy, a legal statutory duty actually of maximizing economic recovery of offshore oil and gas resources and i think that's something that you know people don't seem to appreciate to you know quite the same extent that we as a climate movement in the UK have focused on for example coal in the past the sort of you know we should rightly be condemning the opening of a single new coal mine as you know the government proposed in Cumbria last year. But the fact is that we also extract more than a million barrels of oil and gas a day and have absolutely no plans to wind down oil and gas production in the years to come. Um, So the government's starting to realise that it has to come up with a way of reconciling that and it's huge levels of support for the oil and gas sector with its purported climate leadership. The North Sea Transition Deal is an attempt to do that, as is this announcement that the government is developing what it's calling a climate compatibility checkpoint for new oil and gas licences. So just to give you a bit of a sense of what those two things are likely to involve. So the North Sea Transition Deal was announced in March and it's supposed to be a commitment, a deal, although we would say that it's really a set of voluntary commitments that the industry wrote that the government then rubber-stamped that show that the North Sea oil and gas sector is taking responsibility for its role in the transition that we need to make to net zero. But but what it actually comprises is a bunch of voluntary targets for decarbonising the sector that A, only focus on what we call upstream emissions, so the emissions that are created when you take oil and gas out of the ground, but not the emissions from when you burn oil and gas, which are obviously the major component in terms of the emissions impact of the oil and gas industry. And second, even those upstream emissions targets have been criticised by the UK's Independent Climate Change Committee as being too weak to meet even our national emissions reductions targets over the next decade and beyond. So we've really got a question whether or not a deal that essentially leaves it to the industry to supervise their own compliance with a pretty weak deal is sufficient. And I think the other thing to say is that alongside that, the government did indeed announce its ambition to develop what it's calling a climate compatibility checkpoint for new licences. But projects like Cambo have already been licensed. So the license for the Cambo oil field was given out years ago. So th- there's a huge loophole in that proposed checkpoint in that it won't catch all of the projects that are yet to be approved for development in existing licensed fields. And we estimate that there's at least 1.7 billion barrels of oil that are due to be extracted, or oil or oil equivalent, um, that are due to be extracted in these fields that have already been licensed, but that just haven't been approved for development. And so that's obviously a pretty huge weakness in this climate compatibility checkpoint for new licensing. And I guess the last thing that I'd say is that it's actually untenable to claim that there is such a thing as a climate compatible oil and gas license in 2021 The world's leading energy agency, which certainly hasn't been a friend of the climate movement, the International Energy Agency, came out this year and said that we can't have any new investment in fossil fuel supply, in oil and gas projects, if we're going to stay within the 1.5 degree target that we've committed to under the Paris Agreement on Climate Change. And The UN's Environment Programme has been saying for years now that we've got to rapidly decline Global oil and gas production, if we're going to meet those climate targets. So, the idea that we can have a climate compatible license that we issue next year is just laughable. I knew it wouldn't be
0: (laughs) as simple as it seemed, but uh, so much worse um, than I imagined. Thank you. That was super, super comprehensive. So, Greenpeace has threatened to take the government to court over Cambos. So, what is their legal objection specifically to the government's decision? And do you see that being effective?
1: So I don't think Greenpeace has disclosed the exact grounds on which it would challenge the Cambo oil field if it's approved. But a number of organizations, including Greenpeace, submitted responses to the environmental impact assessment consultation that the government has to run ahead of approving these sorts of new projects. And, you know, there are plenty of grounds basically on which to object to Cambo, as I've mentioned, the emissions impact is very difficult to reconcile, impossible to reconcile with what we know is needed in terms of declining fossil fuel supply if we're going to meet our climate targets. Even those really superficial steps that the companies involved claim that they'll take to reduce the emissions associated with extracting oil from the Cambo oil field are also inconsistent with what the UK Climate Change Committee says is needed to meet our net zero targets. WWF also mentioned in their submission to the public consultation on Cambo that it's also very close to a marine protection area and that the gas pipeline infrastructure would actually traverse that area. So, it's really it's an environmental and climate disaster So I think there will be no shortage of grounds on which to legally challenge the decision if it goes ahead.
0: Okay, so all is not lost, which is encouraging. I want to just kind of, I guess, I don't want to say the sentence to play devil's advocate because it just makes my skin crawl, (laughs) just like that whole phrase. Uh, So I'm not going to say it, but you know that's what I'm thinking. There are people who would say, we obviously need to stop burning oil, but that change isn't going to happen overnight. So isn't it better that the UK uses oil that it extracts at home rather than importing it? Or might say, for example, won't the new oil field bring new local employment, et cetera, et cetera, and how should we be thinking about employment and fossil fuel workers in all of this? So how would you respond to that?
1: Uh, Well, those are basically the oil and gas industry's talking points. So I think in addition (laughs) to being the devil's advocate, you're also being the industry's advocate. But I'm glad you've raised those points because they are important to address. (laughs) No, (laughs) (laughs) Um, On the employment front... So, what we know about the Cambo oil field is that the major contracts for the construction and installation of the platform that's needed to extract oil and gas have gone to firms overseas. So, there's really pretty limited potential for job creation within the UK, especially when you contrast that with recent job creation within the offshore wind industry in the Shetland area, which is where... Cambo would be constructed, where the platform and and the oil field would be. So that's one consideration. The second is that nobody is saying that if we don't develop the Cambo oil field, that we wouldn't have any oil and gas tomorrow. There are already running licenses and projects within the UK North Sea that will produce oil and gas up to 2050. So it's not going to affect our ability to meet our domestic. Energy needs. The other thing that's important to know is the kind of crude oil that the Canberra oil field is going to produce is overwhelmingly exported. It's actually not consumed domestically. So, to that extent, it's not helping us, you know, heat our homes or, or drive our cars or anything like that.
0: Okay. Okay. That's good. Thank you for coming back on that. But you call me the oil company advocate. I need to have a shower after this. Um, (laughs) Absolutely terrible. (laughs) But let's move on to another big campaign around fossil fuel extraction in the UK that listeners might have heard of. So there's currently a a legal challenge under the name Paid to Pollute, which is trying to end fossil fuel production in British waters. So could you tell us a little bit about what that is?
1: Yeah, sure. So that is a case actually that has been brought by three individual climate campaigners, each of whom has a really interesting and kind of compelling reason for getting involved in the case. The first is a guy, Jeremy, who was formerly an oil refinery employee and is now a climate activist. There's also a woman, Karen, who whose parents um, both worked in the North Sea oil industry decades ago, and she's from Aberdeen, which is where... The industry is overwhelmingly concentrated in Scotland. And then finally, the third claimant is a final year. I think she's just finished her exams. Um, She's a medical student at the University of Edinburgh, Michaela, who's also a climate activist. And they're basically challenging the UK's Oil and Gas Authority's latest strategy, which was adopted earlier this year. And that strategy, I mean, I think to... really get to the heart of the case it's important to have a bit of context for what the oil and gas authority does so i might just give you that to start with but basically the oil and gas authority was established in 2016 to implement this objective that the uk government has embedded in legislation in the petroleum act to maximize economic recovery of offshore oil and gas and what the oga the oil and gas Authority's strategy that's being challenged does is it basically says that the OGA in deciding which projects to approve in fulfilling its objective to maximise economic recovery of offshore oil and gas, it doesn't take account of the huge subsidies that the industry receives. And what these campaigners are arguing is that by not taking into account those subsidies, the OGA isn't actually Making an accurate assessment of what is economic for the UK state. Because basically, those subsidies are so enormous. So, in the last, you know, in the last six years, the UK state's actually paid out more than £3 billion in subsidies to North Sea oil and gas companies. So if you don't take into account the money that's flowing from the state to the industry and you're on that basis, making decisions about what is and isn't economic recovery. Like clearly you end up making decisions that favour increased extraction and increased extraction is, these campaigners are arguing, inconsistent with the government's net zero goal.
0: Mm, so is the argument then that the government's effectively paying companies public money to extract oil alongside the other things that you're saying, the, the other reasons why this is not a good idea? Exactly, yeah. Okay, okay. So Moving on to a successful legal climate challenge, which happened recently, just to inspire folks. So Shell lost a big lawsuit in The Hague. Could you talk to us about that?
1: Yeah, sure. So that was a pretty historic case. Um, The decision in which was handed down in May this year, the vast majority of emissions that are associated with oil and gas are from the consumption of oil and gas, right? What happens to it when you burn it, not the emissions that are produced from pulling it out of the ground. And a lot of oil and gas companies, including Shell, have set net zero targets, for example, that only apply to the emissions that are created from producing oil and gas and not from burning oil and gas. And that is obviously missing the main way in which they contribute to the increasing concentration of greenhouse gases in the atmosphere. And this court in the Netherlands basically saw through all of that and it was really the first case in the world in which a court has ordered an oil and gas company to reduce the emissions that it produces not just from extracting oil and gas but also from the burning of the oil and gas products that it sells so that it takes account of its contribution to the climate harms that are being created by fossil fuel consumption. And it ordered Shell globally, so all of Shell's global operations, to reduce all of the emissions associated with both producing oil and gas, but then also the emissions that are created when its oil and gas products are consumed by 45% by 2030. And, you know, that's something that has never happened before and sets an incredibly important precedent in terms of accountability for oil and gas companies for their contribution to the climate crisis.
0: What will likely be the impact of this? I mean, this is just one court case in one country, but do you think it's going to have broader implications around the world? I know you've said that this, is a, this moment is kind of a turning point in the fight against big oil. So should we be hopeful?
1: Yeah, definitely. I mean, my experience, um, having worked on a number of climate cases in different countries, is that what happens in one country is inevitably inspiration for similar action in other countries and i think that the climate movement in particular has been really looking for ways to hold you know in a really concrete way the fossil fuel industry accountable for all of the ways in which it's engineered this crisis deterred action on this crisis obfuscated misinformed you know all of the bad behavior of this industry and this legal precedent, I think will give not just campaigners but also courts in countries around the world the confidence to really go after the fossil fuel industry and adjudicate the facts and come to conclusions that finally, you know, are commensurate with the contribution that those companies have made to the crisis that we're in.
0: Okay, that's encouraging. That is one encouraging thing I've heard. It's brilliant. (laughs) (laughs) just changing tack a little bit, I want to kind of take advantage of our time with you. You're both a climate change and human rights lawyer, and you've written that the Shell case is the first time that international human rights have been used to give a company a requirement to cut their emissions. And I'd love just to hear a bit more about the connection between human rights and the climate more broadly, and if you could explain a little bit about how these legal arguments tend to work.
1: Yeah, sure. I mean, in the broader sense... The connection between human rights and the climate crisis is, of course, that the climate crisis is the biggest, most systemic threat to the enjoyment of our human rights that we've ever faced. You know, the whole range of our human rights are under threat as a result of this crisis. Everything ranging from, you know, the right to food, the right to health, the right to a family life. It's all endangered by climate change in a way that Very few other phenomena in the world sort of pose a systemic threat. So that's, I think, why increasingly climate change cases that are litigated in courts are relying on human rights-based arguments to make the point that our inaction on the climate crisis, and by our I should be very clear, I really mean national governments and the fossil fuel industry who are the ones who are responsible for the climate crisis, their actions are threatening our enjoyment of human rights. And courts have, for decades, been happily adjudicating and applying human rights standards in these sorts of legal cases and legal arguments. So, transposing those arguments into the climate change context gives us a new way of illustrating the way in which the actions of those companies and Governments is a breach of established legal standards, namely human rights standards. And in the Shell case, the court basically held that Shell was acting unlawfully because it was in breach of a Dutch law, which is, it's got an equivalent in most countries, but it's a bit like a negligence law. It's like you can't knowingly cause harm to another person if there are reasonable steps that you can take to prevent that harm. And the harm um, in question that the court saw that Shell was contributing was the harm to the human rights of people living in the Netherlands. I mean, the Netherlands is a really low-lying country. It's a rich country, but it's actually very vulnerable to the impacts of climate change. And as a result, you know, it's expected that people will have to relocate, there's already been extreme weather that's been experienced in the Netherlands and so on. So the court really saw all of those as being examples of the way in which the human rights of those plaintiffs is under threat.
0: Okay, that makes a lot of sense. So we've talked through there a few big legal cases which have happened recently, but are there other lawsuits happening that you could tell us about or which have happened around the world that we should be paying attention to in this vein?
1: Um, we're we're kind of in the golden age of climate litigation in a way, which is uh, maybe an age that's only of interest to climate litigators, but there is just more going on now than there ever has been. Landmark cases like the Shell case that we were discussing, as I said, open the door to so many more people thinking creatively about how to use the law to hold companies and governments accountable. But just this year alone there have been successful cases against a number of European governments basically challenging the ambition of governments' actions to reduce emissions. So there was a successful case against the French government, against the Belgian government, against the German government. On the industry side there's a really interesting case that's currently unfolding in German courts, which is a case that was brought by a Peruvian farmer against Germany's biggest energy company, RWE. And he's making this incredibly important argument that his village in the Peruvian Andes is under threat because of melting glaciers. And they've been able to quantify RWE's contribution to the current concentration of greenhouse gases in the atmosphere. So what he's basically asking the court to do is he's asking the court to order RWE to pay in proportion to its contribution to the current level of climate change the same proportion that it would cost to relocate his village away from the threat of melting glaciers. So the actual amount, because RWE is only actually responsible for 0.3% or something like that of the current volume of greenhouse gases in the atmosphere, it's only, he's only asking for about 20,000 euro, but it's such an important principle if the court accepts it and it would set, you know, an incredibly powerful precedent that could be used to hold fossil fuel companies around the world liable for their contribution to the climate crisis.
0: Brilliant. I mean, fingers crossed on that one. Taking governments and fossil fuel companies to court then sounds pretty great. Sounds like a A very viable path forward. What does this mean for the climate movement then? Do you think that it should be throwing all its resources into legal challenges? Should that just be a part of the struggle? Where does all this fit for you?
1: Yeah, I think it's just another important tool in our toolbox. It's definitely not the only one. And litigation, I think, you know, has a lot of promise and it offers, I think, certain tactical advantages as a campaigning tool. So, you know, I mean, the great thing about courts is that you can't lie when you're in court. So if you take a government or a fossil fuel company to court, unlike what they often do in the public sphere, you know, they have to come clean about how long they've known about climate change and the extent to which they've deliberately obfuscated around it or, you know, known that it's in their power to do something about it and decided to prioritise profit or whatever else. So, you know, climate litigation can be a really useful way of helping to strengthen that narrative that I think the climate movement's done a brilliant job of developing, which is that there are certain actors who are responsible for the mess that we're in. It's not you and me, like we're not responsible as individuals for not freezing our bread or whatever. That's not the problem. The problem is these companies and these national governments. But litigation, you know, on its own is never going to be enough To engender the scale and pace of transformation that we need if we're going to avoid the worst impacts of climate change. I mean, litigation takes years often. Um, It's also ultimately, you know, courts are pretty conservative institutions. They don't like to be seen to be making policy. And it's important from a separation of powers perspective that they don't make policy. So their role can be a really important one in terms of unlocking accountability, but we're definitely going to need political and industrial transformation that the wider climate movement and, you know, public have to get involved in and are involved in in advocating for.
0: Yeah, I mean, certainly from the perspective of the pod, we you know, we have so many fantastic folks, come on and talk to us about all the different things that they're doing across the movement. And it seems like exactly as you said, it, it's both about the unified efforts becoming bigger than the sum of its parts. But also, I know that, you know, you've written before that courts have a history of enacting some of the demands of social justice movements mm. in the past, you know, it's it's always been like critical mm-hmm. to have this kind of work going on. And I guess my final question would be for you, what happens after we win? Do we just, you know, when we've won a lawsuit, for example, can we just sit back and watch companies and governments fix their behaviour and get everything right? Or is there more to do? Something tells me there is.
1: <laughs> uh, yeah, exactly. Yeah, plot spoiler. There's definitely a lot more to do, even if we win, especially if we win in cases that are ambitious. You know, the pay to pollute case that we were discussing earlier, you know, that really challenges the heart of the way in which the UK government supports the oil and gas sector, which is through these massive, you know, billions of pounds worth of tax breaks that that sector benefits from that no other industry does. So you can imagine that even winning a case that invalidates the sort of strategy that underpins that is going to require a lot of vigilance and attention to make sure that the change that we're asking for actually happens because we're up against the most powerful vested interests in the world, really, in the fossil fuel industry. And we know that these companies have incredible access and proximity to governments as well. So we can't just rely on these decisions being self-executing. You know, If we get them from courts, we can't just expect that governments are going to implement them without really being pushed. And I think that's why it's so important that when we support these cases as lawyers, that we make sure that we're working hand in hand with campaigners and activists to make sure that there's that broader public mobilisation and scrutiny of cases and what the outcomes are and that people feel empowered to use what comes out of litigation in their own advocacy so that there's that ongoing accountability because Yeah, I think especially with these sorts of ambitious cases, whether they're against companies or governments, um, there will be resistance to implementing decisions, even in countries like the UK where, you know, governments aren't supposed to just ignore what comes out of court. So we definitely need the broader movement to make these cases successful.
0: Absolutely. So sadly, that is all we've got time for this week. Lovely listeners uh, on the Weekly Economics podcast. Tessa Khan, thanks so much for being with me. I have learned a huge amount from your massive brain. If people want to find out more about your work, where can they go? What should they read? How can they get involved?
1: Thanks so much, Aisha. It's been a pleasure. I would really encourage people to get involved in both the Stop Cambo and Paid to Pollute campaigns. They're both really crucial for determining the future of North Sea oil and gas extraction. As I said, the UK has outsized responsibility for that, given we're the second largest oil and gas producer in Europe. So uh, we have social media channels going for both of those campaigns. So please follow and like and amplify. That would be brilliant.
0: Perfect. And for listeners, I'm sure we will include those handles when we promote the episode on our channels. So don't worry, we'll help you find them. That is it for today's Weekly Economics podcast. We'll be back soon with more Don't You Worry. If you've enjoyed this episode, please tell someone about it. As always, you can drop us a line with your comments and questions. We're at Neff on Twitter. The Weekly Economics podcast is brought to you by the New Economics Foundation, produced by Becky Malone and researched by Margaret Welsh. I'm Aisha Thomas-Smith. Stay safe.